Part 1, Chapter 1 Over the open plain, beneath the starless sky as dark and thick as ink, a man walked alone along the highway from Marchienne to Montsou, a straight paved road ten kilometers in length, intersecting the beetroot fields. He could not even see the black soil before him and only felt the immense flat horizon by the gusts of March wind, squalls as strong as on the sea, and frozen from sweeping leagues of marsh and naked earth. No tree could be seen against the sky, and the road unrolled as straight as a pier in the midst of the blinding spray of darkness. The man had set out from Marchienne about two o'clock. He walked with long strides, shivering beneath his worn cotton jacket and corduroy breeches. A small parcel tied in a check handkerchief troubled him much, and he pressed it against his side, sometimes with one elbow, sometimes with the other, so that he could slip to the bottom of his pockets both the benumbed hands that bled beneath the lashes of the wind. A single idea occupied his head, the empty head of a workman, without work and without lodging, the hope that the cold would be less keen after sunrise. For an hour he went on thus, when on the left, two kilometers from Montsou, he saw red flames, three fires burning in the open air and apparently suspended. At first he hesitated, half afraid. Then he could not resist the painful need to warm his hands for a moment. The steep road led downwards, and everything disappeared. The man saw on his right a wall of coarse planks shutting in a line of rails, while a grassy slope rose on the left, surmounted by confused gables, a vision of a village with low, uniform roofs. He went on some two hundred paces, suddenly at a bend in the road, the fires reappeared close to him, though he could not understand how they burnt so high in the dead sky like smoky moons. But on the level soil another sight had struck him. It was a heavy mass, a low pile of buildings from which rose the silhouette of a factory chimney. Occasional gleams appeared from dirty windows. Five or six melancholy lanterns were hung outside to frames of blackened wood, which vaguely outlined the profiles of gigantic stages. And from this fantastic apparition, drowned in night and smoke, a single voice arose, the thick, long breathing of a steam escapement that could not be seen. Then the man recognized a pit. His despair returned. What was the good? There would be no work. Words of French writer Émile Zola from his novel Germinal, published in 1885. Translator Havelock Ellis tells us that for six months Zola traveled about the coal mining district in northern France and Belgium, notebook in hand. He was inquisitive, was that gentleman, a miner told Chirard, who visited the neighborhood at a later period and found that the miners in every village knew Germinal. That was a tribute of admiration the book deserved. It may not be surprising, then, that Margaret Atwood, 
celebrated author of The Handmaid's Tale and many other stories, is one of the admirers of Germinal, dark, bleak, and masterfully crafted as it is. Margaret Atwood will recommend the novel to those of us who live here in northeastern Pennsylvania. She is the author of more than 50 books of fiction, poetry, critical essays, and graphic novels. Margaret Atwood will be the featured author of the Alan Hamilton Dixon Fund Spring Writers Series at Wilkes University, a conversation with Margaret Atwood, hosted by the Wilkes English Department, will be held on Tuesday, April 26th at 7 p.m. at the FM Kirby Center for the Performing Arts on Public Square in downtown Wilkes-Barre. The public is invited to attend. In anticipation of Ms. Atwood's visit to Wilkes, we had a chance to speak with her by Zoom, and we began with a recent project in which she was involved. As we know, Margaret Atwood is often described as a prophetic writer, someone who has a sense of what might come, prescient, prophetic. What an example of art imitating life when Margaret Atwood was asked to assume the role of Tiresias, the blind prophet, in a production titled Nurse Antigone, based on the work of Sophocles. We began by asking about the project and what it was like to work with Brian Dorries and his crew. What was it like for her to say the words of the ancient prophet? I've known Brian for some time. So he puts on these projects aimed at specific groups and involving specific groups. So he's done Ajax, for instance, for vets, because Ajax is obviously suffering from PSTD and he goes, he goes bonkers during the play. And uh, people understand why uh, they get it. Because, in fact, the man who wrote that play was a vet himself. So that's how Brian connects with people. And he's done, done it for people in prisons. He's done it for different, different groups. And he's, he was putting on Antigone for nurses. Okay. So therefore, some of the chorus was nurses. And the discussion group afterwards was frontline healthcare nurses. Like, who is not listening to us? So Tiresias is a, uh, he's a seer. He turns up in a number of Greek plays and in Greek mythology. And uh, like all prophets in those plays, people do not listen to him at first. And then what he says comes true. But I think the most resonant moment for me is when he says, you know, if you do this, the bad things will happen. And the king says, because he's not listening, he says, how much money were you paid to say that? <laughs> right today, right? Yeah, it's very modern. Like, who backed you? Where'd you get the money? Who's paying you off? Uh, and that can go both ways. You know, it can be it can be used against a good prophet. It can be used against a bad prophet, because as we all know, there are also false prophets. We've read about them, too. Anyway, Theresius turns up, and Brian called me because the person who was going to play that role couldn't make it. So it was short notice. And he said, could you just step in? <laughs> I said, sure, why not? Being an old, an old hammock up on, on stage person, I felt that I could do that and that I was old enough to play that role. Yeah, because Teresa is quite old. And he turns up in the play and he says, you're doing the wrong thing. And the king basically says, his boss here. <laughs> so then he 
he he he continues doing the wrong thing and Teresa says well I'm out of here and he goes off and then the bad things happen just as as predicted so it's actually no fun it's not fun saying if you keep doing this these following bad things will happen it's it's not fun saying that I would rather say if you do these good things over here maybe you can correct the bad things that have happened previously uh, I'd rather say that and I'm I'm doing a project in the fall called practical utopias in which people turn their minds to practical solutions to the procedures and materials that have gotten us into our present crisis which is global so what can we do differently how much would it cost would it be attractive because if it's not people aren't going to do it and uh, how much is it carbon negative or carbon neutral so we're going to be talking about housing we're going to be talking about clothing we're going to be talking about food uh, the material build where are you going to get the energy so we'll do all of that and then we'll say how are you going to run this so what sort of government do you wish to have and you've got a choice do you want a monarch we've tried those <laughs> some were good some were bad do you want a uh, uh, something like Venice, which had a doge, not exactly a monarch, but high high up guy who wore a lot of brocade. You've seen the pictures. Do you want some dukes and barons? Do you want an aristocracy? Do you want a kleptocracy where everybody at the top steals? Do you want an, do you want oligarchs, rich people run everything? Um, do you want a liberal democracy? If so, you better start thinking about it because there are a lot of people out there who don't want that. And if you have that, what does it mean? And let's be practical here. They're all human things that human societies need to decide about. And we seem to be in a, in a period right now of considerable turmoil around those issues. But you will have noticed that liberal democracy compared to what's going on in Russia is looking pretty good right now. <laughs> you have in your works of fiction asked us those questions though, haven't you? This is what could happen. Do you want yeah, it? the bad version, or would you prefer to work on a better version? Um, so if you would prefer to work on a better version, there's a lot of decisions that any society has to make. And that is always a matter of debate because you may have noticed that not everybody agrees with everybody else. And um, it is no use just saying you're bad, evil people because you don't agree with me. And... Um, you should you should burn in hell. That's that's not an argument. <laughs> it's just invective. And we do seem to be in, in an age of name calling. And um, I don't think that's a solution to anything on either side. So I think for anybody's opinion, you have to say, oh, why do you believe this? What is your evidence? And let's hear your reasons, because we're willing to hear those reasons. And then let us examine those reasons and see if they are valid reasons, whether they're based on fact that can be tested, or whether, on the other hand, they're based on a belief system, and belief systems, by their very nature, do not produce evidence. They produce dogma. You believe this, that's it, that's what we believe. And there are a lot of those, but when it comes to practical decisions, they're not usually a terrific guide with the stakes so high now, climate change and all of the things that are before us, 
getting together in that way for deep conversations. We can have conversations with literature too, even if we can't get together with all of you online or however exactly. you'll meet, yes? Yes, I'm doing literary utopias and dystopias as well as real ones that people actually try. There were a lot in the, in the United States in the 19th century because it was a very optimistic age and people really believed we can do things better. That is not a false belief. We, we can do things better, but the people doing these utopias weren't very practical. So I think my favorite is called Fruitland. You can look it up. And they were going to have an ideal community based around growing fruit. Trouble is, they knew nothing about fruit. So if you're going to have a, if you're going to have a utopia based on anything, such as vegetables or mushrooms or you know, nut trees or any of those things, you need to know how those things actually work. I think so. Another wonderful person in our hearts in Pennsylvania is Rachel Carson. And you actually write her into one of your stories. And in your current book, Burning Questions, you refer to her early on. And then you close, you leave us with her and the mm -hmm. sea books. Do mm. we need models like that? Oh, we can absolutely learn from her. And one of the things that we can learn from her is determination. Uh, because she got everything thrown at her, as you know, when she came out with Silent Spring. So the, the chemical companies making DDT did not want to hear this. And they thought of every possible thing that they could say that was detrimental to her. And she did not. She stood her ground because she had the demonstrable facts. Okay. She, she had the People wave this around, they say, the science. Well, to a real scientist, that means nothing unless you can test out the statement that you are making. So just, just saying the science, okay, which science, who did the study, show me. Um, I grew up with the scientists, not with the literary people, and Rachel Carson was a hero. So yeah, she's, a, she's an exemplary figure, and I think coming from that part of the world, she saw a lot of things at first hand. You know, if you destroy an ecosystem, here's the result. Uh, but I'll give you a story of hope, which is the story of Sudbury, Ontario, uh, which I remember from a child. Nothing grew there, like nothing, zero, nothing, nada, because they were doing mining and they had done extreme logging earlier than they'd had a forest fire. And then they were doing this mining, which was covering the land with, with very acid residues and nothing would grow there. And they realized people would come there to work, but they didn't want to stay. So they didn't, they didn't really have a viable continuing community. And uh, we kind of loved it as a child because it was like the moon. It was, <laughs> wow, there's nothing here. It's just rocks. So Sudbury decided it was going to regrow itself, and um, it had to raise smokestacks and put in buffers and things like that, but also it had to replenish the soil. And first it planted things, it stuffed, it stuffed limey soil into the cracks to counteract the acid, and it, it planted tough grasses and blueberries, which can grow in that kind of condition, and they replenished the soil, and now they've got forests again, they're slightly odd looking forests. They don't have everything that was there to begin with, but they're forests. And the big test was the water because it was completely sterile. And when they got the water back to being alive again, Jane Goodall came up and released a trout into it. 
It didn't die. Anyway, Sudbury, Ontario used to be a measure of pollution. Like you would say, this is like five Sudburys. <laughs> and now it's a measure of regeneration. So even if there has been a lot of pollution and destruction, it can be regrown. If, if you give nature the chance, balance out the conditions, nature will come back. You write about gardeners. What about the in-between of garden and gardening? That's part us and that's part nature. You have a complex yes. relationship with gardens. Yes. Um, yeah. So it depends what kind of garden, doesn't it? And in the United States and the world right now, there's, there's a big story about glypsophate, which was marketed just like DDT. And I remember it. We used to go around with the with the flit gun as kids, because we were told it was safe and we thought it was just fun to squirt each other with flit out of the flit gun. And of course I had two uncles who were apple farmers and they were spraying, you know, clouds of pesticides and fungicides and people told them it was safe, no protective gear, they got cancer. We're not a cancer family, we're a heart and stroke family. <laughs> so. There's an onus on the companies who make products to tell the truth about them. Otherwise, they are, they're killing people. So similarly with asbestos, same story. Similarly with miners, it was, it was well known. And for instance, Wales was a big mining area. There's a, a little town in Nova Scotia called Welch Town. And those were all immigrants from Wales. And there was a lot of economic disparity as well. It was poor people who did the mining. It was rich people who made the profits. So you want to read the best mining story of all time. It's by Zola, and it's called Germinal. And it is about a mining town in France in the 19th century. Very gripping. Mining was no, no joke, not a joke. So Cape Breton in Canada is another coal mining area. Yes, there's a lot of mining disaster stories, as you know, a lot of folk songs written about them, uh, getting people out of mines that had collapsed, big stories trapped in the mine. Wow. Uh, very dramatic and um, very claustrophobic. <laughs> There's a lot of decisions to make. Well, deep backgrounds in, in restoring damaged areas and the other kind of restoration that we're going to have to have, uh, because things are getting very top heavy, is um, redistributing material wealth so that not just a few people at the top are controlling it. Because as I often say, if you put the ants in charge of the picnic, they will rearrange the picnic to the benefit of ants. <laughs> Love everything that ants like and nothing particularly that, that you like. Margaret Atwood award-winning author, best known worldwide for The Handmaid's Tale. She was born in Ottawa, in Canada. She grew up in Northern Ontario and Quebec, also Toronto. She received her master's degree from Radcliffe College. Her work has been published in more than 45 countries and she's written more than 50 books of fiction, poetry, critical essays, and graphic novels. And she will be the featured author of the Alan Hamilton Dixon Fund Spring Writers Series at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre on Tuesday, April 26th. It's a conversation with Margaret Atwood, hosted by the Wilkes English Department at 7 that evening, Tuesday, April 26th. 
There will be a brief reading and a question and answer session, and the public is invited to attend. They had to move the location because the demand for seats was so great. The event will be held at the FM Kirby Center for the Performing Arts Public Square in downtown Wilkes-Barre. And for more information and to register, online, wilkes.edu slash lecture series. wilkes.edu slash lecture series. That's Margaret Atwood, who will be the featured author of the Alan Hamilton Dixon Fund Spring Writers Series at Wilkes University, speaking with us by Zoom in anticipation of a conversation with Margaret Atwood, hosted by the Wilkes English Department at the FM Kirby Center for the Performing Arts on Public Square in Wilkes-Barre on Tuesday, April 26th at 7 in the evening, a brief reading and a Q&A session to register or for more information online, wilkes.edu slash lecture series, wilkes.edu slash lecture series. (laughs) 